From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the latest from Israel and Gaza. Ron Elvin on the week in politics. Democrats won a lot of state elections, but will they lose their Senate majority? Also, what's the future for crypto? Is there one? And Claire Keegan, the great Irish writer with new stories about men, women, and the toll of time. I think our mortality does make sense of our lives. That We all know that time is finite and, and someday there won't be a full day or a full night to pass. And later, should falling leaves just be left to rot or not? First, we have our newscast. It's Saturday, November 11, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The Israeli military says it has evacuated one Palestinian hospital in the northern Gaza Strip and is seeking to do the same at nearby hospitals. NPR's Greg Myrie reports Palestinians say their health care facilities are rapidly losing the ability to provide even basic services. Israel's military said it surrounded Al-Rantisi Children's Hospital in Gaza City and told everyone to leave, including staff, patients and civilians sheltering on the hospital grounds. The military said Hamas fighters were also present and tried to prevent the Palestinians from leaving. But eventually they left, many by foot, some by ambulance. Israel is demanding the evacuation of all hospitals in northern Gaza. It says Hamas uses them to protect its fighters from attack. Shooting has erupted in several instances. Palestinians say the hospitals, already overwhelmed with patients, are barely functioning. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas is calling on the U.S. to pressure Israel into halting its offensive. He spoke today in Riyadh, where Saudi Arabia is hosting an emergency meeting of Arab and Muslim leaders. President Biden facing a long-shot challenge for his party's presidential nomination. Congressman Dean Phillips, a moderate Democrat from Minnesota, has been campaigning in New Hampshire, saying it's time for Biden to pass the torch, even as he praises the president's political agenda. Anthony Brooks, member station WBUR, has more. Dean Phillips, serving his third term in Congress, says he's challenging Biden because a number of state and national polls show the president running behind Donald Trump. Not about disrespecting President Biden. I respect him. But he's going to lose the 2024 election to Donald Trump. And that is an existential threat to the United States of America. As he campaigns in New Hampshire, Phillips says he represents the exhausted majority that doesn't want either Trump or Biden for president. For NPR News, I'm Anthony Brooks. New Jersey is leading the nation when it comes to moving people out of flood zones. That's according to new research. And as NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports, a state is on the front lines of climate-driven flooding. New Jersey is one of the most flood-prone states in the country. It's bordered by rivers and the rising ocean. And climate change is also causing more intense rainstorms. Nick Angarone is the state's chief resiliency officer. It's coming down faster than our infrastructure can handle it, and it's coming down faster than even our natural systems can handle it. But in the last decade, the state has passed a raft of new regulations to protect people from flooding and move homes out of the riskiest places. And those regulations appear to be working. Preliminary findings from a federally funded research project show that the density of homes in flood zones in New Jersey is significantly lower than the national average. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Organizers are suspending a campaign to bring a rent control measure to the 2024 ballot in Massachusetts. State Representative Mike Connolly of Somerville and Cambridge has led the effort. He said in a statement last night that volunteers had collected more than 10,000 signatures over the past six weeks, but they would need nearly 75,000 signatures by Thanksgiving to move forward with the process. Other progressive groups have organized against the ballot measure. They say it would weaken efforts to pass rent control through the legislature. A former Methuen police chief and a former officer are pleading not guilty to fraud and corruption charges. Court records show both Joseph Solomon and Sean Fountain were released on personal recognizance during their arraignments yesterday. Solomon's accused of hiring candidates for jobs who were untrained and unqualified. Those hires include Fountain, who was a city councilor. Fountain's accused of misrepresenting his training credentials, including forging a certificate. A bill has been filed that would establish a network of snow and water monitoring stations across the mountains of New Hampshire and Maine. U.S. Senator Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire says the stations will be located in remote areas and transmit data for a year without human intervention. The network's called Snowtel. Shaheen says networks exist in the West, but not in the Northeast. Well, I think it allow us to better predict. So one of the things that it's going to look at is water levels, snowpack. That'll help tell us if we should expect flooding, if we expect drought, if we see drought, how to better prepare for that. Shaheen says this will allow farmers to change the way they irrigate crops if necessary. She also says it will help the outdoor economy. Last night, the Celtics beat the Nets 121-107. to Tonight, the Bruins are in Montreal against the Canadiens. It is 42 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and temperatures in the mid-40s, low dipping to about 30 degrees overnight. A sunny Sunday highs tomorrow in the low 40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Annie E. Casey Foundation using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. Catastrophic is how Doctors Without Borders described the situation at Gaza's biggest hospital. Overnight, the group said attacks on the Al-Shifa hospital in northern Gaza, quote, dramatically intensified and that it has lost contact with staff there. And Piers Lauren Freyer joins us from Tel Aviv. Lauren, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Scott. What do we know about the situation in Gaza's hospitals? Well, this morning, Gaza's health ministry said Al-Shifa Hospital has now run out of fuel and suspended operations. There are reports of patients dying, including a newborn baby in an incubator that turned off when the power shut off. Israel says Hamas's main command center is underneath this hospital. Hamas and Al-Shifa staff deny that. Palestinian officials say this hospital and witnesses nearby say this hospital has been hit by Israeli bombs and artillery. Israel says at least one of those attacks was actually a militant rocket that misfired. 
Thousands of people have camped out in and around this hospital complex today. They see Israeli troops approaching from the ground. Israel's military says it's trying to evacuate these hospitals so it can deal with Hamas. Today, it said it evacuated a children's hospital, Al-Rantisi, but that Hamas members slipped out, mixed in with doctors and civilians. The World Health Organization says a majority of Gaza's hospitals are no longer functioning. A UN spokesperson said, quote, if there is hell on earth, its name is Northern Gaza. United Nations says about two-thirds of the residents uh, in Gaza have been internally displaced. What can you tell us about their efforts to leave and can they even? Israel's pausing attacks in certain areas for a few hours at a time. Today, an Israeli military spokesperson tweeted out guidance in Arabic that's aimed at people in Gaza, though many people there don't have internet, saying safe passage is open for a few hours today along two corridors, one inland, one newly opened seaside route, as well as in a refugee camp called Jabalia, which has been absolutely flattened. The UN says more than 150,000 people have used these evacuation corridors. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, has been talking to some of them. We met this man holding a wooden stick just to hold the weight of their baggages for the long walk. This man, Abu Ahmed, says his home was shelled. He describes being shot at. He says he's been walking more than an hour in the heat. Our producer, Anas, has also been sending us video of whole families stumbling south, children waving white handkerchiefs. And Scott, I want to note, these evacuation routes don't take you to safety. They take you to southern Gaza, away from the ground battles, but where you're still vulnerable to strikes from the air. Lauren, uh, health officials in Gaza say more than 11,000 people have been killed there in more than a month of military strikes, and they're growing calls for Israel to exercise restraint. What is the Israeli reply? Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Hamas started this. He accuses Hamas of using human shields. He has ruled out anything more than these little pauses in attacks in certain areas. He says there will be no ceasefire without the return of hostages. Around 240 hostages are being held in Gaza. There are rumors of prisoner swaps, negotiations. That's obviously secret. We have nothing public on that yet. And Scott, Israel overnight revised down its own death toll from the October 7th attacks to around 1,200. That's 200 fewer victims than Israel's been citing for the past month. Many of the bodies that day were burned and mutilated. The process of identifying them is still underway. But it was that volume of loss of life that prompted Israel to launch the attacks on Gaza that we're still seeing today. And Piers Lauren Freyer in Tel Aviv. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Of course, President Biden has strongly supported Israel's military offensive against Hamas, but the civilian death toll and destruction in Gaza has put his administration under pressure. NPR's Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. It's been a month now since the crisis began, and the challenge has been relentless, hasn't it? Yes, the carnage continues. The pressure is unrelenting. The Biden administration confronts this crisis on three fronts. They have to support Israel, the state, and the idea of modern Israel. That has been the U.S. commitment for 75 years. But the administration is also working to restrain the retaliatory actions of the Israeli military and moderate the response of the Israeli government. Recalling, of course, that it's a government often at odds with its own people in Israel and with many American Jews over the autocratic policies of Prime Minister Netanyahu. Now, this is driven in part, too, by Democrats in Congress in the Senate this week 
uh, two dozen Democrats and two independents sent a letter to Biden uh, urging restraint, urging that only defensive aid to Israel be sent without a challenge to them to provide a plan for Gaza. So that points us to yet a third front. The White House is dealing with a divided Democratic Party, some fully supporting Israel, as in the past, but some more empathetic with the suffering and the claims and the aspirations of Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere. $14 billion of military aid has been promised uh, by the Biden administration to Israel, but it hasn't come about yet, has it? It's in limbo. And for the moment, uh, it is the latest casualty of the infighting within the House Republican majority. There's a small but determined core of conservative activists within that body, empowered to a large degree by former President Trump, who are refusing to return to business as usual. They have voted out their own leader, the Speaker of the House. They took weeks to replace him with someone who has had no time for on-the-job training. So the House did vote for aid to Israel, but only after stripping out money for Ukraine, Taiwan, and other purposes. They also have added what's known as a poison pill amendment, a cutting enforcement money for the IRS, money needed to collect legally owed taxes. Uh, that whole approach faces bipartisan rejection in the Senate, uh, not to mention a veto from Biden. So not yet a serious negotiation. And a deadline for the budget approaches, doesn't it? Uh, six days, to be exact. Uh, by next weekend, at least parts of the federal government will probably be shutting down. Uh, that's unless the House and Senate can work out another stopgap funding bill. Uh, they call it a continuing resolution. It amounts to kicking the can down the road, and eventually they'll probably do just that. But here again, there is a contingent in the House that would rather see at least part of the government shut down, at least temporarily, than go along with what they consider business as usual. And that's a pledge they made to the people who voted for them. The rest of Congress would like to fulfill the pledge they made to the people who voted for them, which includes keeping the government open, as promised. So imagine yourself suddenly Speaker of the House trying to bridge all of these different chasms at once. Not an enviable task. And last week, they brought two spending bills to the floor, and they couldn't pass either one with their own votes. I, I never imagined myself as Speaker of the House, but <laughs> I get your point. Uh, Democrats celebrated a lot of wins in uh, elections at the state level. Is this a temporary reprieve, in a sense, uh, for the polls about President Biden? Yes, it gives the White House something to crow about for a few days. But most of these races turned on support for abortion rights. And yes, Democrats continued an impressive winning streak on that issue. That is a win for Biden's side. But is it a win for Biden? Does it make him a better candidate? Uh, there was also bad news for the party last week in Senator Joe Manchin's retirement in West Virginia. He was already endangered, but now that seat looks lost. And there are half a dozen other Democrats facing tough re-elections in the Senate next year. So holding that slim majority is going to be an increasingly difficult fight. NPR's Ron Elvin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Luis Diaz of the Liverpool Football Club in the U.K. could have drawn a yellow card last Saturday in a match against Luton Town. In the 95th minute, as time expired, Luis Diaz, also known as Lucho, leapt high and bounced a header into the goal to tie the score 1-1. Then he lifted his jersey to reveal a message. It wasn't an ad, political slogan, or some trash-talking taunt of an opponent. Capital letters across his T-shirt declared, Libertad para papá, freedom for dad. Lucho Diaz's father, Luis Manuel Diaz, was being held by the Colombian guerrilla group ELN. 
Mr. Diaz and his wife, Selinas Mayolanda, were kidnapped at a gas station last week. Ms. Mayolanda was soon left in a car abandoned by her attackers, but they kept hold of her husband. Neither Lucho Diaz or his parents have spoken out about politics, social issues, or drug crime in Colombia, where his family lives. But Lucho Diaz earns $3.5 million a year playing for Liverpool. Sergio Guzman, director of the Colombia Risk Analysis Group, told us his fame and wealth make his loved ones targets for hostage-taking. Lucho Diaz missed Liverpool's first two games after his father was kidnapped, but football has been a foundation of his life and his family since the age of six, when he went to a small football school run by his father and was nicknamed Luchito. He was a pro player by the time he was 19. It is against the rules for a player to lift their jersey and display any kind of message. The league wants to prevent players from using their uniforms as platforms to launch political statements, to harangue opponents, or to advertise any business that hasn't paid the required millions for their corporate logos to be emblazoned across team uniforms. But no official flashed a yellow card. Premier League executives didn't levy a fine. Football officials seemed to recognize that what Lucho Diaz had written across his body wasn't a slogan, jeer, or ad. It was a loving son's cry for the freedom of his father. And on Thursday, Luis Manuel Diaz was released by the ELN. He'd been held hostage for nearly two weeks. And that game in which Lucho Diaz scored the last goal and lifted his shirt to call for his father to be freed... The final score was a draw. Liverpool won, Lutontown won. But fans have a lot more than the score to remember. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. You are part of the WBUR community. That's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Monday, November 13th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. For details, go to WBUR.org slash open meetings. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit BlueCrossMA.com go. And Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash grad programs. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. House Speaker Mike Johnson is said to be preparing to unveil a plan that would avert a partial government shutdown. He is expected to release a stopgap funding measure as soon as today, a day after the Moody's credit rating agency cited political polarization in part for lowering its outlook on the government's credit rating to negative. A lawyer for New York City Mayor Eric Adams is acknowledging that the FBI seized phones and an iPad from the mayor this week as part of an 
an investigation into campaign fundraising. Adams says he is not aware of any wrongdoing. And pro-Palestinian protesters clashed with police in New York City last night. There were several arrests after the protesters swarmed the streets, leading to the temporary closure of Grand Central Station. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Prescription drug shortages seem to be common right now. Industry veterans say they're pretty severe. NPR consumer health correspondent Yuki Noguchi and pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin join us. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Hello. Yuki, why are drugs in short supply? What, what's making it worse? Well, there are lots of things that can cause shortages. You know, the pandemic stalled imports, for example. And this year, a tornado hit a Pfizer drug factory. But the biggest problem is the business itself, especially for generic drugs. As a country, you know, we depend on generics for like 90 percent of our prescriptions, 90 percent. So those are very valuable to us from a health perspective. But they're treated as having almost no value in the marketplace. You know, basically... The wholesale system is set up to push prices lower and lower. And that might sound good, but it isn't if prices are too low. And, you know, fewer profits mean fewer investments in factories and fewer factories make us more vulnerable to shortage. Right. So like low prices can lead to quality problems. The FDA inspects factories for quality, but there's no reward for producing higher quality products. There's no way for hospital buyers to compare quality. So basically, they just shop based on the lowest price. Does that translate to making it hard to get many common prescriptions filled? So some people will experience this at the pharmacy counter, but they're more likely to encounter it at the hospital. That's because a lot of the drugs in shortage are what's called sterile injectables, and they're exactly what they sound like. Sterile drugs like saline bags or anesthesia or chemotherapy are more difficult to make. Sometimes there are substitutes. When one exists, the patient might not even know the original drug is in shortage. But other times, especially with chemotherapy, there aren't substitutes, and that's devastating. Healthcare workers also say shortages have led to medical errors, patients getting the wrong dose, for example. How have hospitals and cancer centers been dealing with this? You know, it it can be tough. Sometimes there actually is no drug to be had, at least in the short term. Often one of, say, five versions of a drug isn't available, so hospital pharmacists will try another manufacturer's version. But shortages tend to have ripple effects, causing shortages of other products. Hospital pharmacists sometimes look for different strengths of the same drug, different formulations, different products. It's time-consuming and expensive. Hospitals spend more money on overtime and on drugs because they have to buy outside their usual supply contract. And this affects care, undoubtedly, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, like Sydney said, I mean, it can upend it. Baltimore oncologist Thomas Nguru says this is a huge problem for cancer drugs for kids, and those are in particularly short supply. Now the first thing I do is I call the pharmacy 
the chemo pharmacy. I'm not kidding. I can say, hey, do we have these drugs which I'm going to need? That's crazy. So he can't even tell the child's parents until he knows whether he can deliver treatment. You can imagine the outrage and panic that families feel when they need to alter or delay treatment because of this. Polly Wall ran into this problem four years ago. Her teenage son's chemo drugs ran short, and so did the pain meds and antibiotics that made treatments tolerable. And at one point, he was in such pain that Wall sat on the bathroom floor with him, you know, coaxing him to keep fighting. He had just given up hope. I mean, he he literally told me that he didn't want to have any more treatment at all, and it was over for him, over an IV antibiotic. And he did end up fighting and surviving. But you know, those shortages of those products are for the same business reasons. That's very hard to hear. Uh, are the shortages getting any better? There are fewer of them than there were over the summer when the country was approaching a 20-year record number of drug shortages. That said, the shortages that have lingered have been severe. And often we don't know why. Companies don't have to publicly say why something is in short supply. And even if they say when they think the drug will be back, it doesn't always happen on that timeline. Now, the FDA works with companies to help them ramp up supply when they're having problems and work around supply chain issues. But the FDA can't force the company to make something if it wants to discontinue it, which happens because sometimes prices are so low that these companies just aren't making money anymore. If part of the problem is that generic drugs may be priced too low, what about the possibility of just increasing prices? You know, in Europe, they actually have pricing floors to prevent prices from going so low the companies go out of business or skimp on factory maintenance. But we don't have that. Raising prices sometimes happens. For instance, when all but one manufacturer is left standing, and we usually hear about it when that company gets greedy and raises the price from a couple hundred bucks to tens of thousands of dollars. When I talk to researchers and economists about this, they say that this is fundamentally an economics problem that's persisted for decades and will take a big market change to fix it. And Bears Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sidney Lupkin and consumer health correspondent Yuki Noguchi, thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. NPR's Mike Schuster was listening to an East German bureaucrat in divided Berlin drone on in 1989 when he heard him say, almost offhand, the wall is open. I realized Mike told NPR's Talk of the Nation when he left NPR in 2013, this was going to be the most extraordinary story in my lifetime. Mike died this week at the age of 76. He covered a lot of extraordinary stories. John Gotti's trial, complete with some choice expletives from FBI wiretaps, both Gulf Wars, wars in Kosovo and Bosnia, he reported from Israel on the Second Intifada, the withdrawal from Gaza, and the war with Lebanon. He made many trips to Iran and was there for the 2009 election and Green Wave protests that followed. Peter Breslow, a longtime NPR field producer, recalled this week how Mike wrote his story about the 1991 coup attempt against Mikhail Gorbachev in the backseat of a cab as they raced to the Moscow Bureau. It was elegantly written and perfectly laid out, Peter recalled. Mike Schuster was a good man to share tough assignments, rock steady, wise, and wry. We were in Saudi Arabia one of the first nights of the first Gulf War when air raid sirens wailed. We went down into a basement shelter, bracing for booms and bombs, 
We looked at the ceiling, then across the room, at one another, nervously, silently. Then Mike opened a book. He looked up once and smiled. At last, said Mike Schuster, we get a little time to concentrate. We thank him, and we'll miss him. Claire Keegan is one of the most admired writers of our times. Known for stories and novels that can be small and tight, yet packed with light, as well as ominous darkness. Consider the beginning of her new work, So Late in the Day, Stories of Women and Men. Ms. Keegan? On Friday, July 29th, Dublin got the weather that was forecast. All morning, a brazen sun shone across Marion Square, reaching on to Cahill's desk where he was stationed by the open window. A taste of cut grass blew in, and every now and then a close breeze stirred the ivy on the ledge. Down on the lawn some people were out sunbathing, and there were children, and beds plump with flowers, so much of life carrying smoothly on, despite the tangle of human upsets and the knowledge of how everything must end. Three stories are definitely folded into this short book. I'm Claire Keegan, who has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize, won the Orwell Prize for Fiction, and just about every Irish Literary Award joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Let's begin, if we can, with the title story, uh, Cathal, a clock-watching civil servant in Dublin and Sabine, a French woman. Cathal offers her... I must say, the worst marriage proposal of which I'd ever heard. <laughs> he says, why don't we marry? And then it's quickly followed by neither of us is getting any younger. <laughs> Should Sabine read that as a warning? Well, I, I suppose she was in love and hoping to make the best of things. Yeah. Cathal doesn't seem to understand that when they combine their lives, they combine their lives, and she might bring along a few things. No, he doesn't seem to have much understanding of that. He he's, he doesn't have um, much talent for women, I don't think. Much talent for women uh, or people? Well, I'm not sure what he's like uh, with other people. I, I haven't seen him uh, in that regard, but I, I think his main problem is that he's, he's not able to get along with, with women or or have the generosity of spirit that requires. Now, that's interesting. You say you haven't seen him uh, get along with people other than, than, I guess, Sabine. Tell us how you create a character. Well, I'm not sure. I go around thinking about them and, and wondering what they would do in, in different situations, even if you're at the supermarket and looking what's in somebody else's trolley and thinking about what they'd take home with them and what they dream of and what they'd say and a great deal of of what you write down doesn't feel accurate and I, I suppose a great deal of of the challenge then is trying to become articulate and refine it so it feels accurate. Yeah. I have read that this story began as a classroom example for creative writing students. It did. I was teaching a group of students in a, a fiction writing course. I was talking about the differences between tension and drama. Mm -hmm. And one of the students asked me if I could 
give an example of a story which had a great deal of tension but very little drama. And so I made up this, I just made up this exercise on the board where a fellow comes out of work on a Friday evening and then takes the bus home and uh, very little happens at home. But there are three moments of tension in what I mapped out on on the board. And then I called the story Wedding Day and asked the students, would these things be significant? Would they matter? And would there be tension, Mm -hmm. even though there's little drama, if this was the day that this man should have been married? And instead of that, this is all he does. Second story is called The Long and Painful Death. There's a writer on residency living in the Heinrich Bowl cottage, which I understand actually uh, exists. Retired German professor knocks on the door and more or less demands a tour. Why doesn't doesn't the writer just say, hey, I'm working in here? I suppose because it's not her home and the phone number has been given out. He turns out to be another charmer, doesn't he? He certainly does. He's another fine... uh, Example of somebody who, who doesn't know how to behave and seems to suffer a lack of tact. Men aren't coming out so well out of this uh, so far, are they? Well, I, you know, I had scrawled that down as a question. I was going to take <laughs> up with you after we talked about the third story. Uh, you, you don't read this book and think well of men. At least I didn't. Did I miss something? No, you didn't. Yeah. Uh, in that third story, Antarctica... A married woman decides if she's ever going to have an affair, she better do it now. Takes the train into the city, do a little holiday shopping, and meets a stranger who can get the job done. Am I putting that correctly? I think you are. You you could also say that she doesn't come out so well from the story either, even from the beginning in, in her intentions. I wonder if that's a theme that, that occurs to you over and over, the... Uh fact that our world is finite. I mean, you say it in the first paragraph and you're certainly, there's a a momentous sense of it at the end of the story too. Somebody trying to put some excitement they've never had into their lives and doesn't necessarily turn out the way that they had projected. Well, I think our mortality does make sense of our lives. That We all know that time is finite and and someday there won't be a full day or a full night to pass and nobody knows when or where or why that will happen so it's an extraordinary thing that we go along sometimes the way that we do uh, with this knowledge this common knowledge but of, of course it's it's part of uh, it's part of literature and i i don't yeah. think it's any but anything Uh, people forget about for too long, especially in times of trouble and upset. Claire Keegan's new book, So Late in the Day, Stories of Women and Men. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. One year ago today, the cryptocurrency exchange FTX filed for bankruptcy. Now its founder, 31-year-old Sam Bankman-Fried, could spend the rest of his life in prison. This is a double blow that threatens the very future of crypto. NPR's David Gura joins us. David, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. A jury found Sam Bankman-Fried guilty of securities fraud and money laundering. How's the crypto industry taking it? 
Well, of course, thousands of FTX customers lost billions of dollars in this fraud. A lot of them bought cryptocurrency during the pandemic, Scott, when it was seen as the next big thing. The people who represent other crypto companies now want to distance themselves from FTX and from Sam Bankman-Fried, as you might imagine. Kristen Smith heads a trade group called the Blockchain Association. She is one of them. And in a statement, she told me this trial was about a crook, not crypto. But that message may not get through to individual investors who still feel burned by what happened at FTX, according to Yesha Yadav. She's an expert on crypto law at Vanderbilt. It's very hard for the industry to really disassociate itself completely from FTX and, you know, put that as an isolated incident. And that's because FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried were such big players in the world of crypto. They spent big money, real dollars, on a Super Bowl ad with Larry David, on endorsement deals with Tom Brady and Steph Curry, all with this goal, Scott, of making FTX a household name and to make cryptocurrency popular. Has the federal government taken uh, stronger action against crypto since FTX blew up? Well, we have seen financial regulators like the SEC go after other crypto exchanges and go after celebrities who promoted cryptocurrencies. And one reason they're doing this is they have gotten tired of waiting for Congress to act. There were hearings after FTX filed for bankruptcy. We've seen draft legislation. But lawmakers still have not passed anything substantial related to crypto. And Scott, the odds of that happening, as you might expect, are only going to diminish as we get closer and closer to the next election. Is, is crypto hot anymore? <laughs> Not as hot as it was. You know, as FTX teetered on the brink, we saw this dramatic downturn in cryptocurrency prices. It deepened. Bitcoin fell to around $15,000 from an all-time high of around $65,000 in what was called a crypto winter. And this isn't surprising given how much money FTX customers lost. You know, something individual investors lost is their appetite for risk. But in the last few months, we have seen signs that the market is starting to thaw. So far this year, Bitcoin's price has more than doubled. So it may not be as hot as it once was, but this is a market that it seems is starting to bounce back. So, so there is a future for crypto? Some of the wild speculation that was a hallmark of the crypto market during FTX's heyday has gone away, according to Timothy Massad. He's a former regulator. He ran the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. But Massad, who is now researching crypto at Harvard, says he is still not completely convinced of its viability, given what he's seen so far. I don't think the use case for a lot of what's been developed in this sector has really been proven. He hasn't seen applications for how it might work in the real world. Now, companies and investors are focusing on how the technology behind cryptocurrencies can be applied to various industries like healthcare and insurance. And there are still individual investors who want to buy and sell crypto. Fidelity recently made it possible for people to put Bitcoin in their retirement portfolios. And several big money managers, including BlackRock, want the government to approve a security that would track the price of Bitcoin, which would widen that cryptocurrency's appeal even more. Last thing here, Scott, I want to go back to FTX. You know, believe it or not, even it is on the verge of some kind of comeback. The Wall Street Journal reporting this week, three companies want to buy FTX. They hope to reboot that cryptocurrency exchange. And here's David Gurra. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. You will not find a rent control measure on the 2024 state ballot in Massachusetts. Organizers are suspending a campaign to get that question to voters because they anticipate they cannot gather enough signatures by the deadline this month. Other progressive groups have organized against the ballot measure because they say it would weaken efforts to pass rent control through the legislature. 
And over teachers in the town school committee are returning to the bargaining table this morning after meeting for eight hours yesterday, along with a state-appointed mediator. The teachers went on strike yesterday, although teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. It is 44 degrees in Boston with sunshine today. Temperatures in the mid-40s, low dropping to about 30 degrees overnight. You can expect sunny skies tomorrow, Sunday's highs in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com and Boston Gay Men's Chorus. With Green and Gleeful, a whimsical holiday extravaganza, four shows only, December 10th to 17th. Tickets at BGMC.org. This weekend, the latest from Israel and Gaza. Also, can Congress head off a shutdown? And Weekend Edition's Puzzle Master on the zen of our show's oldest segment. I'm serious about making things fun. Our goal is for every player on the air to sound smart. At home with Will Shorts and all the latest news on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Civilians on both sides of Israel's northern border have been killed by the daily exchange of rocket fire and artillery with the Iran-backed Hezbollah and other armed factions in Lebanon. The Israeli military says about 125,000 people have been evacuated from the border region because of the fighting. But some hospitals in Israel's north have continued working by going underground. NPR's Alyssa Nadborny reports. When you visit the Galilee Medical Center in the northern Israeli city of Naharia, you can hardly tell you're well under street level. There are nursing stations, operating rooms, constantly in motion. Family members visiting loved ones, a neonatal intensive care unit, where a father caresses the feet of his newborn. Babies delivered as early as 24 weeks fill the beds. We are the closest hospital to any border in Israel. Dr. Masad Barhoum is the director of this community hospital, just six miles from the border with Lebanon, which you can see out the windows upstairs. We are down here in the underground with the patients because we are preparing ourselves to continue taking care with the patients even under fire. On October 7th, the day Hamas-backed militants from Gaza crossed into southern Israel and killed about 1,200 people, this hospital moved underground. It's not new. It was used in Israel's 2006 war with Lebanon. A missile hit the hospital's fourth floor back then, but patients and staff were already underground. And they're here again, as fighting between Israeli forces and militants in neighboring Lebanon 
has intensified. The threat is real. The threat is real. There is no doubt about it. The war is here. Dr. Bahir Sirhan is an ER doctor here. For the last few weeks, he and his team have been treating soldiers wounded from fighting in Gaza in the south. Plus, more than 200 northern residents injured in rocket attacks from Lebanon. There was one case for Sirhan that was especially challenging. They told us that we are receiving four people. They'd been caught in rocket fire near the border. But when the patients arrived, they turned out to be his relatives. So it went like from being on one side to the other side, from being a doctor to being a family member. It's a bit confusing. It took me several minutes to cool down my nerves and start treating him. Their injuries weren't critical, and his family members survived. But it still haunts him. I don't wish to to treat my family again. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Let's start from here, maybe, OK? 40 minutes south in the northwestern so city of Haifa. The blue, the blue uh, spots, this will be the surgical uh, wing. Rambam okay. Healthcare Campus, Israel's so largest trauma example, hospital, has converted a three-fourth underground okay, parking so garage into a hospital. Okay. So we're just walking along these corridors, and it's there are parking spots yeah. filled with hospital beds. Of course, yeah. Dr. Natanel Horowitz is part of the team setting up this underground 1,400-bed facility. He points out oxygen hookups, monitors, and respirators. I'm not familiar with another facility like this in the whole world. He shows us that the entrances can also be sealed in case of a chemical weapons attack. Okay, this huge door. Then this facility is isolated from the outside 100%. Nothing can get in. It's a stark contrast to Gaza's deteriorating healthcare system, already struggling before the war. Nearly 20 hospitals there have stopped functioning in recent weeks due to lack of fuel. On our recent visit to Rambam, hospital leaders were running a drill to help nurses and doctors get used to working in a parking garage. I cannot lie and say it's not a terrifying and frightening situation because it is. Alina Meister is an internal medicine nurse taking part. She and her colleagues have a lot of questions. Where is everything? Where people will be? What is the plan? So it's very important that people go down here so they will know how it looked like. There is one department down here that already is up and running. A proof of concept, the pediatric dialysis unit. Tal Romano is here with his four-year-old son, Hadar, getting treatment. It makes me feel more comfortable and uh, also for my kids. As we talk, a nurse draws a flower in pen on Hadar's leg to make him laugh. <laughs> Romano says his only critique of getting treatment underground is that Hadar misses the colorful, kid-friendly decor of the upstairs unit. For the kids, it's a little bit difficult, you know. They don't see the outside world and they don't get used to it so easily. It's hard to make a concrete parking garage feel welcoming. Alyssa Adwarni, NPR News, in northern Israel. And for more coverage of the Israel-Hamas conflict and for differing views and analysis, you can go to npr.org slash Updates. United Auto Workers went big in their strike, more retirement contributions, and some workers will see their pay nearly double. What might the union win mean for consumers? to buy a new car, and how might higher wages shape key auto industry decisions in the future? 
NPR's Camila Dominowski tackles those questions tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Ayesha. You can hear that conversation by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Many parks and lawns are currently a carpet of gorgeous fallen leaves. Why not just let them be instead of rake, 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 or that blare of gas-powered leaf blowers? Mercy! There is a Leave the Leaves movement that says, let those leaves lie. But should you really? We will ask Jessica Damiano. She's a master gardener who writes the weekly Dirt newsletter. Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What is the case for just letting leaves be? Well, there's a movement that's been gaining steam for the past few years, and it's called Leave the Leaves. Um, And the idea is to avoid sending your bagged up leaves to the landfill, which most people do, right? Not to put this natural resource that could decompose naturally into a plastic bag and into a landfill. Yeah. Um, But if you leave them on your plants on your um, soil, they will break down just like they do on the forest floor, right? No one's raking in the forest. The leaves fall and they stay where they land and they decompose into this rich hummus that, you know, more plants grow out of and it fertilizes them. We, We throw out the leaves and then we buy fertilizer, which it makes no sense and it's a waste of money. You're utterly convincing me so far. But but what's the what's the downside? Well, there really isn't a downside unless people read a headline, leave the leaves or they see the movement on social media and they don't look into it any further, which is what a lot of people, unfortunately, are doing as far as I can see. So when a you know, large tree drops leaves on their lawn, they might be tempted just to leave them there. We don't have to rake. But if you have a lawn and it's covered with leaves, it could really endanger the health of your lawn. So if you're in an area in the north like I am, where you're going to get snow over you're, winter. You're in Long Island, we should explain. I'm on Long Island in New York, yes. Um, and so we're bound to get snow. And what would happen is the snow would, you know, hold the leaves into moisture right onto the lawn surface. And that encourages the growth of mold and mildew and fungal diseases. So I would not leave a thick mat of leaves on your grass. If you have a scattering, that's fine. They'll break up. Generally, if you can see quite a bit more lawn than leaves on your lawn, then it's fine. But if you're seeing more leaves than grass, I would move some away or move most of them away and push them into your garden beds where they'll insulate the plant roots, um, break down into this rich soil conditioner and be good for the plants and the hibernating insects. And that's really important. That's something that you know, a lot of people don't consider or think about when they're removing leaves from their lawn or from their garden beds or their properties. And that's that insects, you know, lay eggs in the leaves. They they hibernate in the leaves. And we need those insects and pollinators, you know, yeah. come spring for our plants. Yeah, yeah. Ma- ma- this is a very personal question. I apologize. What what do you do with your leaves? I push <laughs> That's very, very personal. I don't know you like that, Scott. Yeah, no, I I, I felt bad. <laughs> Believe you me, I don't, you know, I don't ask it of everybody. <laughs> I push them into my garden beds over my, you know, perennial roots. And that's free mulch for me. So then I don't have to mulch. I push them there and I leave them there. And then by spring, they're, you know, quite, you know, on their way to decomposing. They're partially decomposed. By the end of summer, I don't even know that they were there. 
you know, um, if if you have especially large leaves or thick leaves like oak leaves, then it's not a good idea because they won't decompose and they will block sunlight and moisture, water from reaching the soil. So there's a magnolia that has leaves that are two and a half, three feet long. You know, the common sense has to prevail. That's not going to be good for your plants or the lawn. I have to confess to you, I have lived in apartments all my life. Mm -hmm. And I would understand a discussion about the trade economy of Luxembourg more than what you've just said. <laughs> just just because I have never raked I've never I've never used a leaf blower. I've never had that responsibility in my life. What am I missing? Well nothing if you know about Luxembourg. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jessica Damiano, who writes the weekly dirt newsletter, also for the Associated Press. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Hollywood's Egyptian theater reopened this week after a major restoration. Netflix worked with the nonprofit American Cinematheque to bring the theater back to its original 1922 grandeur. As NPR's Mandalit del Barco reports, it is telling that a streaming company now owns the classic movie palace. 101 years ago, the Egyptian theater premiered the silent movie Robin Hood, starring Douglas Fairbanks. Showman Sid Grauman had his movie palace decorated with ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, carved columns, sphinxes, and a giant scarab above the stage. It was Grauman's idea to make the movie premiere a big event, says Michael Hernandez, who led a tour of the theater this week. Sid Grauman would dress his staff in Egyptian garb, and they were part of the show. The Egyptian guards that would patrol the rooftop of the palace, calling out announcements in movie times, 10 minutes of the movie, five minutes of the movie, grab your seats, Robin Hood is about to begin. And then his young ladies, he would dress as harem girls that would go out into the courtyard and greet the patrons that were coming into the courtyard and he, they would also escort them to their seats. Grauman apparently had movie stars dress up in gowns and tuxedos. The fanfare, the Klieg lights, the red carpet, that was all Grauman's idea, says the executive director of the American Cinematheque, Ken Shearer. He says Grauman was inspired by a train ride to L.A. For the VIP section on the train, there was a red carpet. And he thought to himself, Jesus, that's a great idea. The Egyptian theater opened just weeks before the discovery of King Tut's tomb, but already, Egyptian culture was all the rage, says historic architect Peyton Hall, who worked on the theater's restoration. I don't think Sid Grauman was prescient about what was going on in the tombs of Egypt, but he was very much on top of popular architecture and promotion. Further down Hollywood Boulevard, Grauman went on to build his Chinese theater, where stars' handprints and footprints are immortalized in cement. Over the years, the Egyptian theater changed owners, and by the 1970s and 80s, it was rather run down. After the 1994 Northridge earthquake damaged the theater, the city of Los Angeles bought the condemned property. A few years later, the city sold it to the American Cinematheque for a dollar. Well, <laughs> a nonprofit. We could have afforded two dollars, maybe, but that was about it. Rick Nasita, who chairs the American Cinematheque's board of directors, says the nonprofit spent $12 million to fix the theater, but it still needed a complete retrofit. We were doing the best we absolutely could, and the theater ad was a wonderful, evocative place to go, but it wasn't state-of-the-art, shall we say. Enter Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos, who's also on the Cinematheque's board. So I called Rick one day and I said, um, why don't I have Netflix buy the theater and then we'll do the preservation work. The screenings were mostly attended on the weekends and we need it during the week. 
and we'll bring this thing back to its you know its original glory, and it'll be a great place for our premieres and events, and the place for the Cinematheque to save film for free all weekend. Netflix spent four years and seventy million dollars to completely restore the theater. Nasita says the streaming company that began by showing movies and shows at home is now the movie theater's savior. On its surface, it would seem it's an unlikely partnership, but I have to say they have been great in understanding our mission. We said we will not sell this theater to you unless we retain the ability to do what we do. The American Cinematheque plans to continue holding film festivals, retrospectives, and talks with filmmakers. They'll show 35 and 70 millimeter films and even old films made on flammable nitrate film. Just this month, it's showing classic films like Lawrence of Arabia, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Open the Pod Bay Doors, Hell, West Side Story. Netflix will run its own movies, Wes Anderson's The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar and Bradley Cooper's Maestro. In August, Netflix also bought the Paris Theater, one of the last remaining single-screen cinemas in Manhattan. By now, the Paramount consent decree has been phased out. That was the antitrust legislation passed in the 1940s to prevent movie studios from buying up movie theaters. But Sarando says the Paris and the Egyptian are special cases, and he says running movie theaters is not Netflix's new business model. No, no, I would look at it as, a, as an investment in the community. So, you know, we, we really do believe that we are a net contributor to the film industry, and now we're a contributor to its history as well. I think in many ways this is symbolic of some one of the many ways that streaming companies are saving Hollywood. Sarandos and Nasita say in the past 101 years, so much has changed in the film industry, technology, distribution, movies, and audiences themselves. On Thursday, the Egyptian reopened with the premiere screening of David Fincher's new film, The Killer. No one was dressed like an ancient Egyptian. The brand-new old movie palace has LED lights and a state-of-the-art projector and sound system, but it still transports audiences to another world. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News, Hollywood. And this is Weekend Edition from NPR News, where B.J. Lederman, who writes our theme music, is still in his original splendor. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 44 degrees in Boston, lots of sunshine today and temperatures in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. 
On last week's Wait, Wait, Maeve Higgins had a great idea for a hit nature show. It's called Bear With Me. You just do normal things, but there's a bear with you the whole time. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel. will join us for this week's news quiz, where celebrity DJ Steve Aoki joins us as we do our normal things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, President Biden and President Xi of China set to meet. Also, the challenge of getting news out of Gaza. Are states using loopholes to overlook air pollution? Waffle House workers rally. Michael Cunningham's first novel in almost a decade tells the stories on a single day over three years of the pandemic. And Marshall Chess has a new album with fresh riffs on the music that made his family name a part of the blues. My father didn't know music. He came from Poland. He was an immigrant. But he soon learned there was magic in music more than any other apparent magic. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, November 11, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Israel has revised downward its official death toll from the Hamas attacks on October 7th. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Tel Aviv. In a text message to journalists, a spokesperson from Israel's foreign ministry says around 1,200 is now the official number of people killed by Hamas militants on October 7th. That's about 200 fewer victims than Israel had been citing for more than a month. Israeli media quote unnamed officials as saying some remains were initially misidentified. Many of the bodies were burned and mutilated that day, and the process of identifying them is still underway. The number of hostages being held in Gaza remains around 240. The October 7th attacks and the volume of casualties prompted Israel to launch air and ground strikes on Gaza, where Palestinian health officials say more than 11,000 people have been killed. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Fighting is reported to be raging outside Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest in Gaza. A spokesperson for the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry says operations have been suspended after the facility ran out of water, food and electricity. There are international calls for Israel to do more to protect civilians. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said today that the responsibility lies with Hamas. For almost 100 years, the U.S. has officially observed Veterans Day each November 11th to mark Armistice Day, the end of World War I. Today, NPR's Amy Held reports President Biden honored those who served at a wreath-laying ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery. Today's wreath-laying ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is meant to mark the beauty and the brevity of life. Today, there are more than 18 million veterans living in the U.S. They're being honored across the country in parades, including in Louisville, Kentucky, where Captain Marjorie Graves makes history as the first female veteran grand marshal. She served as a nurse in the Vietnam War at the age of just 24. I went through a very difficult time based on some PTSD that I had from Vietnam. I said I was involved as a body identifier for a 34-soldier 
crash. Graves is still helping veterans cope with post-traumatic stress disorder. The VA says among those who have served, somewhere around a quarter have experienced it. Amy Held, NPR News. A tentative deal between actors and Hollywood studios now in the hands of the SAG-AFTRA union's rank and file after the union's board voted overwhelmingly to approve it. Duncan Crabtree Ireland is the union's national executive director and chief negotiator. The union's national board voted to to approve by 86 percent vote the tentative agreement that the negotiating committee reached with the AMPTP on Wednesday. Voting by union members expected to begin on Tuesday and continue into December on that three-year contract. Provisions around the use of artificial intelligence among the final sticking points that were worked out. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Andover teachers and the town school committee will head back to the bargaining table this morning. Yesterday, the teachers went on strike. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. The two parties bargained for eight hours yesterday with the help of a state-appointed mediator. The teachers say the school committee already has increased its parental leave proposal to 11 paid weeks and the number of sick days to 15 for instructional assistance. A Whitman mother has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against a UNH fraternity and local bar about two years after her son died following a night out. 22-year-old Vincenzo LaRossi was found dead in an icy swamp in New Hampshire. The lawsuit alleges that Scorpions Bar and Grill overserved him. The suit also says that UNH Sigma Chi fraternity violated several safety policies that night. Students kicked LaRossi out of a party while he was visibly drunk and dazed from being punched in the head during a fight. Veterans hoping to ferry around the Cape and Islands can ride for free today. The Steamship Authority is giving free tickets to those in active duty and honorably discharged and retired veterans. Veterans can use their real ID as verification. Boston's open-air holiday market, known as the Snowport, is now open in the seaport. More than 120 small businesses are participating in the third annual market. Ariel Foxman oversees the Snowport for WS Development, which hosts the market. He says 60 percent of vendors this year are local to New England. And over 70 percent of our businesses identify as either BIPOC and or female owned, which we know also is something really important for consumers coming into Snowport and coming into the holiday market, knowing that they're making a difference on so many levels. The Snowport market is open seven days a week through the end of the year. It is 44 degrees in Boston, sunny skies today and temperatures in the mid 40s. Low tonight dropping to about 30 degrees. A sunny Sunday's in store, highs tomorrow in the low 40s. Looking ahead to Monday, mostly sunny and temperatures in the upper 40s. WBUR supporters include Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose. Creating Tomorrow, today. More at iu.edu. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping are sitting down to talk next week at the meeting of an Asia-Pacific economic group in San Francisco. It has been more than a year since the two leaders have met, and tensions between the U.S. and China have risen. NPR China correspondent John Ruich joins us. John, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to. Good morning. 
it's extraordinary that it's been a year since the two leaders uh, have spoken, and it's been quite some time since President Xi has been in the U.S., hasn't it? It has. It's been more than six years, if you can believe that. His last trip to the U.S. was in April of 2017, and a lot has changed since then, as you can imagine. We've had a trade war, a pandemic. Uh, there have been spats over human rights and technology. Military-to-military -military ties were cut after Nancy Pelosi, who was House Speaker, went to Taiwan last year. There was the spy balloon incident. I could go on and on. The relationship's in a very different place than it was uh, the last time she was here. But... You know, compared to earlier this year, in the wake of the spy balloon, things do seem to be in a little bit better shape. How so? Yeah, there's just been lots of diplomacy. You know, both sides uh, have sent senior officials back and forth, uh, and they seem to be keen to stabilize the relationship, to sort of put a floor under it uh, with all this dialogue. But this trip by Xi Jinping to San Francisco is not a state visit. Biden and she will only talk uh, for a few hours. They're going to talk about a wide range of things. And advisors to Biden say it's going to be limited in terms of what, what is going to come out of it. You know, their main goal is just to stabilize the relationship and lower the risk of conflict. Bonnie Lin is director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I don't think either side are going in expecting major deliverables or major breakthroughs in the relationship. But it could empower the two sides to make continue to make progress on areas where we've seen improvement. Right. So that's things like climate change or people to people interactions rather than government to government. The Biden administration says it wants more cooperation from China on fentanyl. A lot of the precursor chemicals come from China. We might see some agreement there. Also, there seems to be momentum toward restarting those military to military talks, which were cut after Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. What would be the incentive in that for President Xi? Well, President Xi wants stability too, right? And reestablishing senior military to military talks would be a pretty good step and an, an example of that. You know, the navies of the U.S. and China are the biggest in the world. They're operating near each other in the South China Sea and around Taiwan pretty regularly. Nobody wants an unintentional escalation. But Oriana Schuyler Mastro, who's a China expert at Stanford University, says that even a reestablishment of those mill mill exchanges in the medium and long term would have limitations. Because China traditionally uses them as a tool, as a threat to say, we're going to cut these off whenever we're unhappy. There's no guarantee they won't do that again in the future. Another key thing that's on Xi's mind these days, of course, is China's economy, which has had a disappointing recovery this year. Foreign investments down. There's been an outflow of capital from China. Xi is expected to speak at a dinner for business leaders in San Francisco when he's there, and he will no doubt make an appeal to them. But Proof's going to be in the pudding. You know, a lot of foreign business executives that, that deal with China have been spooked by his policies. So, you know, even though he and Biden are meeting and these talks are a positive step, they will not solve the fundamental problems. And Piers John Ruich, thanks so much for being with us. You bet. Over a month into the war in the Gaza Strip, and international news organizations have little, if any, access to Gaza. Israel, which is bombing Gaza, in response to the deadly Hamas attack on its soil, controls access. And with the exception of brief tours with a limited number of reporters, Israel has not been granting journalists access to the region. The conflict has been deadly for those trying to report it. Roughly 40 have been killed so far. Four were Israeli, one from Lebanon, the rest Palestinian. This leaves much of the outside world with limited access to news from Gaza and the approximately 2 million people who live there. Sharif Mansour is the Middle East and North Africa program coordinator at the Committee to Protect Journalists. He joins us now. Mr. Mansour, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott. 
What do you hear from local reporters who are working in Gaza about the conditions under which they're reporting? Well, this is the most dangerous months or so we've seen over the course of three decades when we documented journalists killing anywhere else also around the world. Palestinian journalists are facing outsized challenge and risk. They were forced to flee after seeing colleagues killed, media facilities bombed, and their own homes and their families as well. And in addition to all of that, it's hard to get the story out, isn't it? It has been uh, difficult to get electricity, to get in an internet connection. They are struggling to uh, even survive finding food or water right now. And once the Israeli army bombed communication towers, we almost reached and used blackout several times. And it has been consistent now three times when international media even cannot reach their own journalists or the freelancers. In addition to other harassment and assaults on journalists covering from the West Bank and from within Israel, unprecedented level, uh, we have documented at least 13 journalists who are also been arrested in the West Bank, in addition to outright censorship by passing legislation in Israel based on vague, harming national moral charges. They can put someone in jail for up to one year right now. I have to ask, is Hamas welcoming the journalists? No, uh, in addition to access problems from the Israeli side, of course, Hamas have enforced its censorship regime within Gaza. For the first time, this war that we have documented Israeli journalists being killed by Hamas fighters, four of them who were killed in southern Israel on October 7 in the unprecedented assault. The Committee to Protect Journalists has called for the protection of journalists working in Gaza. And I, I say this with respect, is that really possible? I think the numbers tell the story of the exponential risk. And we're talking here about unprecedented bombardment, in addition to other factors that makes this more deadly. But we at the committee, we also try and spread information about safety guidelines. We understand that they may not have that possibility if they are already there near combat situation. Mm -hmm. I believe the Israeli forces say they have an obligation to review footage and stories so that operational plans aren't revealed. What do you think of that? Well, we've seen similar restrictions, uh, but I think the most alarming is when the Israeli government and the Israeli army said to Reuters, AFP, and international media that they cannot guarantee the safety of their employees. And of course, journalists are civilian and they are protected under international law. No international and uh, international journalists or a media outlet would risk having a headquarter after seeing media facilities bombed. Why is it important for the world to hear what's going on now? I think we rely on journalists to have critical, timely information 
because otherwise we are left with uh, a sea of this and misinformation that can only fuel the conflict. Sharif Mansour is the Middle East and North Africa Program Coordinator at the Committee to Protect Journalists. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you for having me, Scott. And for more coverage and for differing views and analysis of the conflict, you can go to npr.org slash Updates. Waffle House workers from Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina picketed at the corporate offices this week. They're pushing for better pay and improved workplace safety measures, as Marlon Hyde of member station WABE in Atlanta reports. Dozens of workers marched and chanted outside of Waffle House's corporate office in Norcross, Georgia. They're asking the Georgia-based restaurant chain to improve pay and overall security. Gladys Wilson has worked at Waffle House for the last five years. Some of us made 219, some made 269. You got people that have been there 20 years and they only make $3 an hour. Many people on social media know Waffle House for the videos of fights during late night shifts at their 24-hour restaurants. Wilson says some nights she works in fear of being attacked. Our safety comes first. You trying to make a living, and you shouldn't have to die trying to make a living. They've gotten support from the recently formed Union of Southern Service Workers. It's not a union sanctioned by the Labor Relations Board, and Waffle House workers are not unionized or pay union dues. But the group wants to organize workers in Alabama, Georgia, North, and South Carolina, all so-called right-to-work states, where it's hard to join unions. Shay Parker is a member of the group. As we get more workers involved, whether it's Waffle House, McDonald's, a warehouse, whatever, to know that they have a voice, they don't have to continue to just settle for less, because that's what we've been doing. We've been settling. The USSW is circling a petition demanding a $25 minimum wage and 24-hour security at the nearly 2,000 Waffle House restaurants, mainly in the South and along the East Coast. For its part, Waffle House had no comment on the group's demands, nor on the organizing efforts among some of its workers. For NPR News, I'm Marlon Hodd in Atlanta. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. Coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll hear about goats wearing GPS collars. That's ahead on WBUR's Weekend Edition Saturday. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rappaport Foundation. WBUR's Deborah Becker moderates a discussion on teen mental health with a panel of experts, authors, and medical professionals exploring what schools, parents, and communities can do to help. Wednesday, November 15th at noon. Register for this virtual event at rappaportfoundation.org. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. 
I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. With less than a week to avert a partial government shutdown, House Republicans are expected to unveil details of a temporary spending bill this weekend. House Speaker Mike Johnson could release a stopgap proposal as soon as today. The tentative deal between actors and Hollywood studios is now in the hands of the SAG-AFTRA rank and file. The union's board voted overwhelmingly to approve the three-year contract last night. Voting by union members begins Tuesday and continues continues into December. And President Biden is due at Arlington National Cemetery outside Washington, D.C. this morning to participate and deliver remarks at the Veterans Day wreath-laying ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. From FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at FJC.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The people responsible for improving air quality are increasingly turning to a little-known rule to meet federal clean air standards for millions of Americans, and they do so, even as wildfire smoke becomes more common. That's the finding of a recent investigation from the California Newsroom, Muckrock, and The Guardian. Lead reporter Molly Peterson from the California Newsroom joins us. Molly, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. What is this rule called the Exceptional Events Rule? Yes, it's tucked into the landmark Clean Air Act, and it lets local regulators exclude bad air days if they can tie them to events that are uncontrollable or defined as natural by the Environmental Protection Agency. That includes volcanoes and dust storms, and this is the one we're really paying attention to, wildfires. And what did your reporting find? Well, we found that more places are using this rule to forgive more and more days of pollution as climate change sets the stage for bigger and bigger wildfires. California has traditionally used this rule more than anybody else. But it's not just the West Coast. More than 21 million people in the United States live in places where regulators have used this rule, from Washington State to Louisiana and Baltimore. Can you give us an example? Well, let me take you to southeast Michigan. In 2022, Detroit had enough smoggy days that the region might miss multi-year federal air goals for ozone. If that happened, Michigan would need tighter rules on everything from auto assembly plants to print shops and a vehicle inspection program. Not very popular in the Motor City. Michigan argued that two of these smoggy days were influenced by Canadian wildfires last summer. And because EPA agreed, the state avoided adding rules that businesses oppose. And of course, just this summer, much of the U.S. East Coast suffered effects of more Canadian wildfires. We know from federal data that 23 states have signaled the possibility of filing exceptional events around that, including Minnesota, Texas and the Carolinas. What does the EPA say about this rule in practice? When they answered us in writing, EPA maintained that these policies are a part of the law, the Clean Air Act, and that all of the forgiven exceptional events data still exists, like for health researchers to find and use. What they don't like is calling it a loophole. 
But we heard that a lot. Regulators and other sources called it a magic wand, an escape hatch, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, what are the possible repercussions of uh, increasingly relying on this rule? The Clean Air Act has for over 50 years saved lives and millions of dollars by controlling pollution at its source, at tailpipes and smokestacks. The biggest problem, according to public health experts and advocates, is that forgiving bad air on paper doesn't change the fact that smoke can be harmful. I talked with health scientist Vijay LeMay, who works for the Natural Resources Defense Council. So we may have a sort of stable, relatively rosy picture, but the true conditions on the ground in terms of the air that people are breathing in, you know, day after day, week after week, year after year, is increasingly an unhealthy situation. Even so, regulators around the U.S. straight up tell us and the EPA that they're going to lean on this rule more, not less, in the years ahead. Molly, what are you watching for as this continues to play out? The Clean Air Act wasn't written in an age of climate change, like a lot of our environmental laws. It didn't anticipate the dramatic increase in wildfire smoke we're seeing in the skies now. You can't put scrubbers on wildfires the way you can on coal plants. Here's law professor Michael Wara. He's at Stanford's Woods Institute for the Environment. What exceptional events determinations seem to show is is a poorer and poorer fit between the policy we have and the problems it's trying to solve. Wara calls it a warning light on the dashboard for the Clean Air Act. Climate change is making air pollution worse. Regulators say pretty much all they can do is warn people about all of this unless the law is changed. California Newsroom's Molly Peterson, thanks so much. You're welcome. Tom Lambert is among the last living witnesses to a key moment in the history of the Cold War. We all ran away from the light, and you could feel the heat on your face 25 miles away. 1953, the U.S. military conducted a test they called shot grape, firing an atomic weapon out of a cannon. Seventy years later, Tom Lambert recounts the story to his son, reporter Tim Lambert, of WITF in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's later today on All Things Considered. You can hear it live on your radio, or tell your smart speaker to play NPR, or your member station by name. And now it's time for sports. Coach Harbaugh, step away from the sideline. NBA, a tournament early in the season. Howard Brad of Better Lark Media joins us. Howard, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott. Are you are you having a little fun at John Harbaugh's? I'm sorry, at Jim Harbaugh's expense? Um, I would never have never have fun at Coach Harbaugh's expense. <laughs> uh, Big Ten Conference announced yesterday it's banning Coach Harbaugh from the sidelines for the team's final three games. This comes after the team was found to be in violation of that Big Ten sportsmanship policy because they sent a staffer to opponents' games to record video of the team's signals. He can coach the game during the week. Does the punishment fit the violation? Well, certainly it's cheating. I mean, there's no question. I know that the university is filing an injunction to get Coach Harbaugh on the sidelines, etc. But if you lay out and you read the 13-page uh, complaint, essentially, 
you're not supposed to spy on other teams, especially when you're the third ranked team in the country and, and you've got a, a, a great coach like Harbaugh. And, and the, the complaint said that this was not a reflection on him. However, it's it really is a silly sort of dirty thing to do. And it seems they got caught. The assistant coach, Connor, former assistant coach, Connor Stallions, resigned uh, as the center of it, buying 12, 13 tickets to, to games to have other people in, st- in the stands watching uh, your opponents play. And they got caught. And the reason why this, the reason why this punishment is so abrupt, even though the University of Michigan is saying it's a rush to judgment, is because they were caught earlier in the season doing this, so they're trying, so the Big Ten is trying to punish them during the season. There are only three games left. And so, yeah, to answer your question, does it feel a little bit rushed? Sure it does, but what are you doing, Michigan? What are you doing? Uh, you mean, uh, oh, you mean, because they knew the rule, right? I mean, if you're Michigan, what what are, what are you doing as a, as a as a team, that this is something that uh, this what are we are we the New England Patriots? Are we going back to Spygate back twenty years ago? Yeah, I mean it's just a really silly, uh, but serious serious offense. And I think that what we're also seeing with Jim Harbaugh and with that team is that he was already that the the school was already under violation for recruiting violations yeah. earlier this season. So this is twice this year for a really really good team. They've got a huge game today, and this is uh, the coaches always talk about not wanting to be distractions. Well, they are the distraction right now. First ever NBA in-season tournaments underway. Uh, By the way, last night, LeBron and Le Lakers came back in the fourth quarter to beat (laughs) Phoenix. Um, I'm not sure I understand the idea of a tournament within the season. Sure you do, Scott Simon. Sure you do. Just go back to Airplane, where the little kid looks at Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and says that you guys don't you guys don't play hard until the playoffs, and my dad thinks oh. that you're... I think you're great, but my dad thinks you're lazy, or whatever, that type right, of stuff. Yeah. Essentially what they Hey, NBA kid, try walking around with Bill Walton on your back. Yeah, I love that scene, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to... They're trying to give an 82-game season some relevance. They're trying to, They're trying to fight the argument that the the games don't matter until we get past the all-star break and that the teams don't really care about the season and with load management being an issue over the last couple of years uh that they're trying to make you care about this they're trying to make the players care about it you know before christmas and and to try this new gimmick to give you something to play for to give the fans something to watch it it seems in some ways a bit of a concession that the season is just too damn long. <laughs> and maybe this is a way to get people excited about the full season until, you know, before the real action starts. So somebody's going to ho- hoist yeah. a trophy in the second week of, uh, or the first week of September. Uh, we've got an in-season tournament. And the other sports are doing it too. We have something like that yep. in, in soccer as well. So it's a, it's a way to try something different. Howard Bryant, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Time now for StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, recording conversations between service members and their loved ones. This Veterans Day, we hear from Private First Class Eben Albright. He's a Chupik, Alaska native who served as a U.S. Marine in Vietnam. At StoryCorps in Anchorage, he told his son Owen how a friendship with another veteran helped him heal from his time at war. I never really thought about being in the military till I first saw Audie Murphy and John Wayne acting in a World War II movie. 
that's what I said. I'm going to be a, a hero like them. So I ended up in Vietnam. To me, I was in a different world. And I did not want to make any friends because uh, we never knew when anybody would die because of the bullet. It's uh, hard to talk about it. I wanted to forget the memories of what I did, and I started drinking really bad. Alcohol became my best friend for a long time. But uh, I used to go to a group that met at the VA, and Bill Martin came into our combat group in the evening. The first time I ever saw him, he reminded me of General Custer. Yeah, a big mustache. Yeah, but he got to know me, and I got to know him. He spent 20 years in the military, and part of it was in Vietnam. You and Bill helped keep each other sober? Yeah, and if I needed help, I would call him and talk to him, and he always listened. You know, after I came back, I was expecting parades, but it was just different, calling us uh, baby killers. And so for a long, long time, I was ashamed to be a Vietnam veteran. But me and Bill Martin, we went to powwows. And the first time I was really honored for returning from Vietnam was a powwow in Fairbanks. And I was asked to carry one of the flags. And he was standing next to me. He was comforting me. It's okay. Thank you. When was the last time you saw Bill Martin? It was like four or five years ago. He had to fight cancer a couple times. And when his cancer came back the third time around, he said, no, I'm not going to go through that again. So I miss him. You know, I remember Bill Martin as uh, someone who always wanted to bring joy into people's lives. That's why he was family. Uncle Bill was your uncle. <laughs> and we were brothers that can't be separated. I miss him very much. He made me feel special. Eben Albrun with his son, Owen. Owen wanted to hear about his father's time in the military because he's considering joining himself. Why do you want to join the military? Well, uh, I looked up to you and Bill um, for your service, and I wanted to do things with my life that I thought were more important than myself. Well, like I told you before, I will support whatever your decision is. Thanks a lot. You will always have a special place in my heart, no matter how old you get to be. That's Vietnam veteran Eben Allrun with his son Owen at StoryCorps in Anchorage, Alaska. Their interview was recorded in partnership with Alaska Public Radio. It's archived in the U.S. Library of Congress. This season, NPR and StoryCorps invite you to interview a loved one as part of the Great Thanksgiving Listen. You can find more information at thegreatlisten.org. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later, because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. 
Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Agriculture is one of the biggest sources of pollution flowing into the nation's waterways. Looking for solutions, a goat farm in Virginia is using a new technology to help improve water and soil. Jacob Fenston of member station WAMU reports. Hey, girlies. Let's go. Come on, everybody. Come on. My name is Molly Croys. I'm Sam Croys, my wife Molly. We are a seasonal farmstead goat dairy, so we make cheeses, gelato, caramel. Molly and Sam Croys run George's Mill Farm on about 90 acres in northern Virginia. The land has been in Sam's family since the 1750s. As they lead the goats out of the barn for the day, the goats seem to know exactly where to go, even though there are no fences to be seen on the property. The Croyses' farm is part of a pilot program. Each goat is wearing a collar with what looks like a big cowbell. But it's not a bell, it's a solar-powered GPS unit. Previously, the technology was only available in Europe. I just kept sending them emails being like, when are you coming to the U.S.? When are you coming? Like once a year, I'd be like, how about now? How about now? Livestock can be terrible for the environment. Manure pollutes waterways. But livestock can also be great for the environment, enriching soil, encouraging plant growth, and even making the water cleaner. It all depends on how the animals are managed. The Croises say the GPS collars help them farm in a way that's environmentally responsible, a practice called rotational grazing, moving the goats from place to place on the farm. We love the environment, but to be honest, a lot of the things we do that are environmentally friendly on the farm, we do because we're also very cheap um, and it's (laughs) cost effective. It's cost effective and it's better for the animals and therefore better for our products as well. The collars are from a company called No Fence. They can be used in place of a traditional electric fence. The GPS collars communicate with satellites and the Croises can set the boundaries with a smartphone app. It's similar to the technology you might use for pets. If a goat approaches the boundary, it gets an audible warning from its collar. And then it'll stay there for a minute, and if they keep, they don't move, they get a shock. She demonstrates coaxing a few goats toward the invisible boundary. Rotational grazing is good for the environment because it helps keep nutrients on the land. In a more traditional dairy operation, animals would be crowded together, all pooping in the same spot. Matt Kowalski with the environmental group the Chesapeake Bay Foundation explains. Say if you had a two-acre paddock right around the barn or right around where you were milking, you get way too many nutrients there. Any rain will quickly carry those excess nutrients off the land into the water, feeding algae blooms. The algae then use up oxygen in the water, creating dead zones. This entire process starts with too much poop in the wrong place. But on the Croises farm, the animals are like roving fertilizer machines, helping cycle nutrients from forage plants back into the soil. Once that forage has passed through the, the digestive system of a warm-blooded animal, when they poop it out, the bacteria and the microbes that then add to the, the underworld ecology There's magic that happens. The Croises have been farming like this for about a decade, but until recently they were using actual physical fences to rotate the goats. Using solar-powered GPS collars saves hours of labor each day. We are no longer moving fence every day. Sam can update the fence line while he's drinking his coffee in the morning. It's pretty great. (laughs) Um, And that frees up him to do a lot of other things that need doing around here. That's why farmers and environmentalists are excited about the new virtual fence technology, and it can even make food taste better. 
Croy says their animal's varied diet gives the goat cheese more interesting and complex flavors. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Fenston. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. A former Methuen police chief and a former officer are pleading not guilty to fraud and corruption charges. Joseph Solomon and Sean Fountain were arraigned yesterday. Solomon's accused of hiring candidates who were untrained and unqualified. Those hires include Fountain, who was a city councilor, and Fountain's accused of misrepresenting his training credentials. The Concord Select Board is moving forward with a plan to cover up three plaques deemed historically inaccurate and offensive to indigenous people. The signs mark an oak tree that settlers bought from Native Americans for the town's incorporation, a fishing site, and an area where settlers first lived. Concord's Historical Commission and the town's Diversity Committee will consider options including removing the signs, replacing them, or turning them into an educational exhibit. Tonight, the Bruins are in Montreal against the Canadiens. It is 46 degrees in Boston. Sunny today, temperatures in the mid-40s, low around 30 tonight. A sunny Sunday, tomorrow's highs in the low 40s. And on Monday, mostly sunny and highs in the upper 40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. On last week's Wait, Wait, Maeve Higgins had a great idea for a hit nature show. It's called Bear With Me. You just do normal things, but there's a bear with you the whole time. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for this week's news quiz where celebrity DJ Steve Aoki joins us as we do our normal things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Michael Cunningham has written his first novel in almost a decade. Did it take the pandemic to do it? Day brings us into a circle of family and friends in three days, April 5, 2019, 2020, and 2021. It spans the pandemic through which the world lived and during which so many people died and so many hopes and dreams were smashed and rearranged. Michael Cunningham, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his 1998 novel, The Hours, joins us now from New York. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We've interviewed so many novelists over the past year who said they found it hard to work during the pandemic because life seemed suspended. How did you begin to tell yourself, nah, this is what I want to write about? Your phrase, smashed and rearranged, could have been the working title for the novel, but that, but that didn't seem ultimately like the right thing to call it. 
I was in the middle of a very different novel when the pandemic roared in, and I just put that novel aside. There was no way to sort of work the pandemic in without looking like I was working the pandemic in. It didn't seem possible to write a contemporary novel that did not acknowledge the pandemic. But at the same time, how do you write a novel about human beings in the pandemic as opposed to writing a novel about the pandemic? Well, tell us about this um, this Brooklyn family that is at the heart of the book. Uh, Dan, holding on to the rock musician he might have been. Isabel, his wife, who holds the family together. And their children, Violet and Nathan. And then Isabel's brother, Robbie, who lives in the attic. Real New York arrangement, by the way. <laughs> it is very New York. They are prisoners of New York real estate, among their other qualities, yeah. Well, tell us about them. Yeah, sure. The situation in which they find themselves in the first third of the novel before the pandemic is that Isabel and Dan are in a marriage that isn't holding up all that well. It's not turning out to be quite what either of them had in mind. And each of them is in certain ways in love with Robbie, who is Isabel's younger brother, who is a single gay man. Let me stop you there. They're both in love with Robbie. That's a complicated situation, even for Brooklyn. <laughs> it's about idealism. It's about the person with whom you cannot have an actual romance because he's your brother, because you are straight and married to his sister. You know, it's about the chimera of another person who looks as if they might have been a better bet, even though they probably wouldn't have been, but who comes with what can be a sort of strangely enlivening body of absolute limitations. The structure of this novel is a single day taken across three years. Your fame novel, The Hours, obviously a single day. You you have acknowledged not just a debt to Virginia Woolf. Your life was really changed directions when you first read her. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read her when I was pretty young and um, not much of a reader. I read Wolf's Mrs. Dalloway, and I realized for the first time that it was possible to write sentences like that, to produce prose with that kind of grace and balance and complexity and musicality. And that is really, I think, what turned me into a reader and then ultimately into somebody who began to try to write. I have read that you were once a bartender. I was. Um, when I graduated from college, I got into my third-hand car and drove out into the mad American night, thinking that I would sort of wrestle a novel out of it, out of whatever was out there. And... You know, I kind of loved it for as long as I did. My very favorite job was my last one before I went to graduate school in a bar no longer with us called the Boom Boom Room in Laguna Beach, where the bartender wore grass skirts and lays. And let's just say that 
I kind of loved it. It was so public. It was so fast. It was so chaotic. But I have retired my grass skirt and my lay, and I promise you, no one wants to see me dressed like that anymore. Well, it doesn't sound like the place that would fit the question I'm about to ask, but I'm still curious. Did people tell you their problems? Um, Yes. People tell you their problems. They manifest their problems. You, You get their problems just coming rampaging at you across the bar with or without an actual confession to the bartender. And, um, you know, one of the surprises to me was I wasn't, if you will, gathering material as I thought I would. Those people's stories were their stories, and I listened to them, and I let them go. Um. In, in the course of the three years of this story, of course, some of the characters move, move away, or or just away from each other, or closer. And there's a line near the end in which Dan, the old rocker, says, he finally realizes, to quote you, an artist is someone who refuses to listen to reason. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You include yourself? Oh, yeah. I would probably venture to apply that to almost anybody who writes, who paints, who acts, who does anything that is hard to feel recognized about, at least until enough time passes and you get lucky. Um you know the odds against anyone becoming a writer who is actually read. Not to mention the fact that going into year three, working in a gay tiki bar in Laguna Beach, your parents begin to wonder why they sent you to college in the first place. (laughs) But for I think for many of us, we just have to insist on doing what we want to do anyway even though the odds are stacked against us, even though people are beginning to lose faith in us, whatever it is, you just sort of tie yourself to the mast and hope. Michael Cunningham's new novel is called Day. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Blues is a family business for Marshall Chess. His father, Leonard Chess, co-founded the legendary Chess Records label of Chicago in 1950. And boy, did they release music. Chuck Berry, Muddy Waters, Etta James, Bo Diddley, Howlin' Wolf, many, many more. Marshall Chess is 81 now. He's behind a new album that reimagines blues classics from the archives of the label with a brand new sound. Elden is called New Moves, and Marshall Chess joins us now from the studios of WAMC in Albany, New York. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Why this album now, Marshall? Well, I love making records. I had a medical 
problem in 2019. I was stuck on the couch for over a year, learned how to learn how to walk again. And I called my old producer friend who I'd worked on the other blues albums with and said, let's do something. Um, it was just spreading the blues to new demographics. Is, is there a song on this album that really sort of depicts what you're, what you're trying to get at? I picked all these songs about stuff I was trying to get at. I had a lot of girl problems in my life, so a lot of these songs are about men's problems with women, you know. She kicked me out, it was nine below zero, you know. But in this album we recorded a new song uh, called Help Me. You gotta help me. And I just love that lyric, help me, I can't do it all by myself. I mean, it, see, the thing about the blues that I learned very young, the psychological therapeutic factor of the blues. Everyone has problems with women, rent, money. And the blues told it in a very basic way, but everyone doesn't realize that they're common problems. You put a band together just for this project, right? Keith LeBlanc is one of the top drummers in the world. And Skip, the guitar player, Skip McDonald, each of those guys have played with hundreds of artists, the Rolling Stones, Seal, right down the road. And Bernard Fowler is one of the best black vocalists in America today. He tours with the Rolling Stones, I think, for the last 15 years. And uh, we put them together, and then I let Keith advise me of the best players in the world. I, I mean, there's such an extraordinary wealth of material from uh, from Chess Records. How how did you decide what to include? I just picked these tunes with songs I had played over my life. You know, I got I had my first wife. Now I got divorced. There's a few of those kind of songs in there, you know. And then I'm 81, my friend, and the two songs on there, Mother Earth and Going Down Slow, they're about dying. And I know that's coming up, and they make me feel better about it. I'm going down slow. Please ride my mother. Tell her the shape I'm in. Marshall, you were a small boy when... Uh, your father and uncle started Chess Records. Yep. What was it like to grow up? Like growing up in the circus, you know, loved it. I, I actually started work at 13. I were Jewish. After my bar mitzvah, I went on the road with my dad, 1955, my first road trip uh, through the South. I remember seeing the bathrooms colored only. The first Chess record recorded in 1950 was a saxophone guy named Gene Ammons, and I was at that session. I slept on folding metal, those old metal folding chairs. My dad was a workaholic. My mother guilted him, and uh, he dragged me around. And when I once asked him after I started working, what's my job, Dad? He looked at me and said, your job's watching me. So, you know. Well, I, I have to ask, Marshall, was there tension, acrimony, controversy in your time over white producers white label owners having such an influence over the blues and black musicians? No, no, there wasn't. I don't remember that until much later. There weren't any black record executives, black recording studios. 
At first, it was controlled by the major labels, RCA, Columbia. Then the independent record business started. And what made that happen was payola. Guys like my father could pay a disc jockey 50 bucks. He'd play the record. You know, you knew what you had, you know, and that's how this your, whole, your, the whole thing started. Your father did that? Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with, without payola, there wouldn't have been rock and roll, my friend. I said that at the Grammys when I picked up an award for my father and uncle, and everyone gasped, you know? Well, good for you for stating stuff like that out loud. Uh, is there an artist you've worked with that you were around in the heydays of the chess era that you particularly admire? Oh, no mind? doubt. Muddy Waters. Woo! Now, when I was a young boy, at the age of five, my mother said going to be that was his white grandson, Muddy Waters by far. His wife, Geneva, numerous times sent me for, she knew I, knew I loved fried chicken. I was always working there in the summer in the shipping room, an immigrant son, you know, you worked. And I, uh, she used to send me fried chicken, yeah. Tell us about So Glad I'm Living. Muddy Waters song on this album. It's about a guy that meets a girl and falls in love and it makes him feel that good. And how did you change it? I, it's just, it's the lyrics that are the same. It's, it's the musicians and they, they came up with the grooves. And it's very difficult the way he constructed the songs because they're not normal music. Basically, they're like what's called a remix but played live. It's like when they do a remix, they cut parts up, they reassemble it. But this is done live, so it had to be, it's much, it's quite difficult. My baby loves me. I know she loves me right. She let me lay down. How do you, uh, how do you keep the blues alive these days, do you think? I'm trying with albums like New Moves. The blues is just so, it's as good as Beethoven or Bach, man. It's so important to American culture, to world culture. It's the foundation of rock and roll. Um, but people forget about it. That's why all these experimental albums I've, in my years began to work. I brought in new people, you know. Marshall Chess, new album, new moves by The Chess Project, out now. Thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure, I enjoyed it so much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. It's 46 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and temperatures in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And H&H, take part in a tradition as Boston as Fenway Park. Handel's Messiah, three performances November 24th through 26th. HandelandHyden.org. Trump's trials, there are so many, and it can get confusing which turns are important and which ones aren't. We'll bring you up to date on the civil fraud trial in New York, where former President Donald Trump and his daughter Ivanka testified this past week. We dive into their testimony and look at what's at stake for the former president. That's on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.